0: Our reading is taken from 1 Kings 11, and uh, sorry, my my fault, I put the wrong closing verse in. Um, I really only want to go down to verse 13 this evening, Um, so 1 Kings 11, uh, 1 to 13. And before we read, let's pray together. Father, as we come again to your word, open it up to us, we pray, and make the word speak to us, that we may respond rightly, and honor you with our lives, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian Uh, the abomination of Moab and for Molech the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem and so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from from you, and will give it to your servants. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear, tear away all the kingdom, But I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So we come to the last chapter, uh, which deals with the life of Solomon. And and we'll take it in two steps. uh, Because I think the first 13 verses uh, raise for us an issue... About our relationship to God, that we ought, perhaps ought to think a lot more about, um, and that is how is it that some, somehow some people uh, be, start off the Christian life, uh, but over time seem to to give up on their first love. Um, and I don't mean it in a you know we're going to look at it in an abstract theological sense, but in a, I want to look at it in a very pra- in a pra- very practical sense and let the word of God speak to our own hearts uh, this evening because for some of us maybe even many of us we've uh, come across people who have begun the Christian life well and they love the Lord, they're full of zeal and energy and uh, uh, you know they're leading other people maybe to Christ and they're leading people uh, to serve him better and they seem to be out front as it were but at some point they've gone off the boil and they've, uh, they've lost their way and they, uh, they maybe even abandoned the faith altogether. I know, I know quite a few people like that. Maybe you do too. And, uh, you know, the, ma- the man who was instrumental in me coming to Christ, as far as I know, is not following Christ anymore. Uh, way back to my student days. And something like this seems to have happened with Solomon. Um, and you may remember that back in chapter 3, verse 3, Uh, Solomon, where Solomon had recently come to the throne, uh, we're told in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. And so you get this strong sense of uh, this deep love that Solomon has for the Lord. And of course the Lord goes on to bless him with uh, great amounts of wisdom so that he can rule the kingdom. So much so that uh, kings and queens from the nations around come to him for... Council, and he's blessed materially. There's so much gold coming into the the, uh, the kingdom, and you know he's written books that are in the Bible that actually help us. Books about his wisdom, Book, you know, Book of Proverbs, the the Song of Solomon, uh, probably Ecclesiastes. Uh, wisdom books that that we benefit from even today. And yet here in chapter eleven. We find that Solomon seems to have lost his way completely. So how does that happen? How did that happen? How does it happen? Well, the first thing we've got to be clear about, and here's the first point, is uh, to think, what is the sin? What's the sin that's, caused it, that's at the heart of this? And there are many, there are many effects of this of this, the root sin that we could list. Um... What we need to do is get to the root of things. And uh, so, what, you know, we could look at the extremes of wealth, for example. Many people do that. They look at the extremes of wealth that you find in the previous chapter, chapter 10, um, and uh, think that that's the sin, you know, to be wealthy. I mean, it's a very topical thing today, isn't it? In, in our society, in Western culture, we're, we're full of guilt about inequality. We're constantly talking about inequality in society. Uh, there are some people rich and some people poor. And why should that happen? And, you know, let's redistrib- let's take the money from the rich and give it to the poor. And you know, there's all that kind of stuff going on. I'm not commenting on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's for you to decide. But, as we saw last time, the Bible doesn't have a problem with wealth as such. God blesses people, sometimes materially. And it's the love of wealth that often is the downfall of people. Um, so we could look at wealth, but I don't think that's the root issue. We could look at his, the, the number of women in his life. I mean, it's just an astronomical number of women that he is, uh, seems to be related to. 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, 1,000 women uh, you know, around him. And um, that's just so hard to comprehend, And the the net effect of that was that uh, Solomon begins to dally with the the gods of the nations that these women have all come from. The the problem here is not that they're foreign so much as they are believers in other gods or they're worshippers of other gods. And, of course, that begins to have its effect on Solomon. But is that the root issue? Not really. What is it that accounts for all of these things. What is the sin that's underneath all of those sins? That's a very good question to always ask. What's the sin behind the sin? So the sins that you see are often not the root issue. Uh, There's often something deeper than that going on. And we'll probably get more into that as we go. But the answer, of course, is in verses 6 and verse 9. And if you look at those verses, um, we're told... the. Uh, Verse 6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And, here it is, did not fully, wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. See, this is the root issue. That the heart had turned away from the Lord. And this takes us back to the very first of the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. God, the Lord, the one true and living God, is to be first over all loves. God is to be first in life for everyone. And I think you can make an argument that any sin that you and I have in our lives that that expresses itself in sinful actions has at root this issue that God is no longer number one in our lives. We've forgotten that first commandment, that most basic of commandments. And therefore, everything else in our lives begins to express various other kinds of sins in our lives. You see, God has made us. This God has made us. He's made the the universe. He's made the creation. He's made us in his image. And he has made us for a particular reason. That we may glorify him, live for him. And in doing so, enjoy him forever. First question of a shorter catechism. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. These two things go together. Your best life is to be lived in glorifying God because it's the most enjoyable life. Really? Do you believe that? Well, you need to think about that if you don't. That's the best life for you, to glorify God and to find your enjoyment in Him. You have to be very single-minded about how you live as one of God's people. So somehow... Uh, or other, Solomon had got to the point in his life where the Lord was no longer number one. That he had turned away from the Lord. That the Lord was no longer important. Now there are hints here that he still paid lip service to the Lord. He he served the Lord, but not wholly, And he mixed in some other things as well. But as a result, certain sins begin to emerge in his life because he's lost this, because of this root sin. So his wives begin to corrupt him and his collection of wives. Uh, The worship gets corrupted. He starts worshipping in high places. He starts even paying attention to these false gods. And his wealth becomes a problem. All all the W's, wives, worship and wealth, get corrupted, messed up. Because he's lost that first love. So the question for us this evening is, is a very simple one to begin with. Is, is the God first and foremost in your life this evening? Before your wife, before your husband, before your children, is God the Lord number one in your life? Is he more important than your work? The thing you spend your life doing Is he more important than your bank balance or your hobbies and pastimes? Brothers and sisters, we need to examine our hearts and all of these kind of things. To be wholly devoted to the Lord. So, that's a sin. Second thing is, what kind of sin is it? And the answer to that is that it's a sin of the heart. Uh, You can see that in the way that the heart comes into uh, this, cha- this section of the chapter uh, often. Uh, so, verse two, uh, God reminds, um, uh, God's word reminds His people that you shall not enter into marriage with them; these for- foreign go- foreign wives. Uh, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after other gods. Or verse three, uh, what happened in Solomon's life? Uh, His wives turned away his heart. Um, Or verse 4. For when Solomon was old, uh, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Or verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. So it's all about the heart. And so abandonment of the Lord as your first love and concern in life is actually a sin of the heart it begins with the heart now what do we mean by the heart and I have to do this every so often we talk about what the bible means by the heart and, um, and I have to do this because the western idea of the heart is, is actually quite different um, uh, in modern parlance the heart is oft, and the mind are often two separate things and so you find that the heart is to do with the emotions and where I'm giving my affections to and the mind is something else. It's, uh, it works independently of the heart. And it's, and you see this often in these sort of Jane Austen uh, adaptations, don't you? you know, the, 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 the battle always seems to be between uh, the issues of the heart and love and marriage and the issues of practical utility and rational thought, <laughs> what is good, you know what is going to preserve your security in the future for the wife particularly. Uh, and you get this kind of conflict going on all the time between the mind and the heart going on well the bible doesn 't think of the heart in that way. Um, actually, the Bible is more than just the effect, in the Bible, the heart is more than just the affections and the loves and the desires of the heart. But it actually includes the mind, and it includes the will, a decision-making process, the things you decide to do in life. So the heart is the, is the mind, the affections, and the will, three things. And um, you know, so, so i just explain. You know, the, you know, the heart is about the emotional seat, but it's more than that. It's about how you think about things, and even how you think about the things that you love and it's all about how you decide what to do as a result of this mind and this heart that's thinking these things through and that's the heart it's the inner life of the person and um, uh, the inner life of the human being now for Solomon then when we think about his sin as a sin of the heart we're not just thinking about the emotionally driven aspect of his life you know, previously he was emotionally driven to love God and now he's emotionally driven by his wives all around him um, it's not just about that because at some point as well the heart gets totally corrupted and you begin to think wrongly about these things um, and and as we think about how, how you think when you're sinning there are two ways you can go either Uh, you you begin to rationalize why a particular sinful action has no alternative. You always, you know, the heart is very good at coming up with reasons why doing this sin is actually a good thing. And it might be something very simple, like I need a rest, and, uh, you know, I should just indulge myself here. Or it might be something like pleasure does no harm. You know, everybody's seeking pleasure, and, you know, sin is, sinning is pleasurable. Why do we do it? Unless it's not. So we begin to think wrongly about sin if we're uh, when the heart is affected by sin, or so one is we rationalise it, or the other thing is we think it doesn't matter, which is a kind of rationalisation. We think the sin's not that important, and so we can just indulge in it, and it'll not actually harm us, and I'm not do any any anything bad. And this is. Uh, it's this misdirected these misdirected affections and this inner justifying of why of those misdirected affections that leads to the sinful actions that follow and we do things that you know in a more rational moment we would think as realizes sin so that makes the sin of the heart very subtle because it begins in the inner life. And its presence may not be obvious, certainly not to anyone else. But it may not actually be present, obvious to you either. My own sin. Just like you can only see 10% of an iceberg above the water. So um, you can only see a small part of the sinning that people do. Uh, you can't see what's going on in people's hearts. And so, and then the other thing to say about these sins of the heart is that, well, as well as them in being inner sins, they're often hidden. They're likely to have developed over time. Sinning never comes suddenly. That's probably why, as you look at the life of Solomon, uh, as we have been doing, you there's plenty to give thanks for in his life. There's a lot that's amazing in his life. But we've come across those little fish bones, haven't we? We've come across those little moments where it causes us to think, hang on a minute. You know, it causes us to choke a little bit. And we think, what, what's going on here? For example, in three, three, chapter 3, verse 3, it says Solomon loved the Lord what a wonderful thing as, he, as did his father David what a wonderful thing he loves the Lord but then he says then we're told he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places now I'd suggest to you that's a bit of a fishbone. why? because high places always seem, mostly seems to be connected with pagan worship the high places where you go to worship the, the God you go up the mountain somewhere and you try and find a place that you can worship this God and give him honour and so Solomon is still going up, is going up to the high places. You think, that's a, that's a bit strange. So he has this marvelous love for the Lord, but he's, he's just got this thing in his life that doesn't seem to be quite under control. And suddenly, you're, you know, as a reader, you might be choking it on a little fishbone. You know, and you think, oh, just pay attention to that. And as you read the story, you find more of these fish bones, and then suddenly you discover, at the end of his life, his life's a total mess. Spiritually. And you can imagine that Solomon, in his early life, he's going up to these high places, and he might have been justifying why he's doing that. He might be saying to himself, I'm going to show those pagans what it's like to, to, to worship God and I'm going to stand in their place and trample them down and I'm going to worship God. I'm going to tell people I'm worshiping God here in this place. But then as time goes on, he begins to soften a little bit and then he begins to kind of take on the trappings of pagan worship. And that's what you see at the end of his life. He's worshiping Kremosh and Molech. A tragedy, and you know, all the clarity that you once had becomes foggy because you've not paid attention, Solomon, to this little fishbone in your life, this little sin that seems to be in your heart. And by the end, he's off, off the rails. Now, my point here is that, is that sins not dealt with in youth may take decades to come to fruition in your life. It takes time for them to emerge. And and so the message for those of us, especially those of us who are at the top end of the age range, and I count myself among that group of people, is pay attention to your heart, especially as you get older. Because the question is, are there sins... You have an eye, maybe, have quietly allowed to flourish under the surface. That I've never dealt with. You know, the weeds are growing up. Nobody can see them yet. <laughs> but they're growing, they're growing, and soon they will overwhelm your garden. I have a great garden for this illustration. <laughs> it's full of weeds. <laughs> but that's what it's like. These sins that kind of grow up, they fester. Nobody can maybe see them and you maybe only see the surface. Other people see the surface and your best flower border and all that sort of stuff. But behind it all is all the weeds. Other sins that you have quietly allowed to flourish like the weeds of your garden. Let me just... Be a bit more specific, and especially thinking about older people. You know, I've noticed this about older people—not <clears throat> just Christians, but you know, um, many older people I've known. It is that as they get older, certain sins become more and more apparent in their lives. Uh, there is a kind of self-centeredness that comes in, and I think a lot of it is to do with the narrowing of the world and. Um, you know, the limited ability of people to do things and you, your world gets smaller and smaller. But it, it feeds a kind of self-centeredness. And there's a growing, also an, a growing anxiety about the effects of age and you live in anxiety. And perhaps the worst thing I've seen is a certain sourness of soul um, that grips people as they get older, a bitterness that kind of creeps in, that seems to kind of pop out verbally every so often and the thing about being, getting older is your, your inhibitions drop because you don't care anymore <laughs> you know you, you want to tell people what, what you think of them, and your inhibitions drop, and so the sins begin to come out do you, do you, does that resonate with anybody? I don't know, but It's worth thinking about, isn't it? As we get older, what are the sins that are being allowed to flourish that may come to fruition at some later stage because we have not settled this issue? Is the Lord number one in our lives? Well, here's the third thing two more things. The tragedy of love lost, and um, uh, this is what we see in in Solomon's life. Again, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. He loves the Lord. But here in verse 1, he loves these many foreign women. See so how he has transferred his lo- the love of his heart from the Lord to these many foreign women. And in verse 3 it says, Solomon clung to these women in love. He cl- <laughs> Clinging to them. He kind of depends on them now. And we've seen that. So we see this gradual Transfer of affections from God to the women in his life, and this in turn leads him into uh, into worshiping their gods. In verse four, and then in verses seven and eight, more more explicitly. Now, as we think about this, um, and it's three different aspects. You know, the, sins, the sin of the heart, and it's three different aspects: the affections, the mind, and will. It's probably true to say that the most difficult aspect to bring under control is the affections. Uh, The things that we love. Um, The affections usually drive everything else. The the affections what you love and what you desire usually drives your thinking uh, in human life. And so the affections can overrule your mind. And then they determine your will. Now it's not always the case because as we know I hope we know that in order to communicate the gospel we need to get to the heart, to the Uh, to the affections through the mind. We need to to preach well enough that it makes sense to people and then it begins to change their hearts. But you understand how difficult that is if the affections drive everything. But that's why we need the Holy Spirit, isn't it? That's why conversion is about the Holy Spirit. It's not about rational, uh, logical arguments. In the end, it's about the Holy Spirit changing everything for you inside. And replacing all those old affections with a brand new affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a a famous sermon that Thomas Chalmers preached in the 19th century um, called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And his argument was that. In order to wean people off the love of the things of this world, there needed to be a greater love presented to these people. Something more worthy of love and affection. And that's, of course, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit to do that for you. To actually change your heart and change your affections so that you are now directed towards the Lord Jesus Christ, to God himself, through him, and then you begin to think properly and you begin to do differently and live in life. And once you've got it, that, that heart, that changed heart needs to be guarded. In fact, Solomon wrote about that in his Proverbs. Proverbs 3, uh, 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Be vigilant with your heart. Well, Solomon wasn't. He didn't follow his own advice. He didn't pay attention to his own heart, and he drifted into this sin. And it's worth thinking about what this exchange of the Lord for all these foreign gods entails. Um, The thing about those other gods is, other gods don't don't uh, demand the whole of your life. They're quite happy with the occasional act of worship you know, and sacrifice. So you could go and you know, make your sacrifices in the high place and then you could carry on with life. And you know, for a long time you could just do nothing. You know, pay no attention to that God at all. And then you know, something bad happens and you think, oh, I better go and worship God again and appease him. And uh, I'll make another offering to him. And uh, okay, you're happy again. And then you go back to your life as before. You know, that's how kind of ancient paganism works. But not God. You can't do that with God. Many Christians do that with God. They think they can come to church on Sunday and then just forget them the rest of the week. You can't do that with God. God wants you all. He wants you on Sunday, but he wants you on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the whole week. He requires your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength, all that you are, he requires it of you. He wants nothing left out so that you love him absolutely. And he's worth loving absolutely. Because then you enjoy him. All the more and you enjoy him forever. Well, here's the last point. I'm nearly finished. Consider with me in these last few verses, verses 9 onwards, the anger of the Lord at the sin. So verse 9 says, and the Lord was angry with Solomon. And then the sin is spelled out in verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since you have uh, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servants. It's amazing that God is still speaking to Solomon (laughs) in spite of this sin. And uh, and so this judgment is spelled out for Solomon and it's a very practical judgment. And it's a judgment that's going to affect the whole of the people of Israel. Remember as we said before, you know, as the head goes, so goes the body. We've said this many times. As leaders go, so the people go. And something is going to happen to this kingdom at the hand of God. It's going to be torn from him. Now this is not just a matter of um, natural consequence, but it's actually a deliberate act of judgment by God for Solomon's persistent sin in denying him. And the the specific act is this, the tearing away of the kingdom from his son in verse uh, 12. Uh, But not all of it. Verse 13 tells uh, tells us, I will give one tribe, to your son. And as becomes clear later in chapter twelve, that one tribe is Judah uh, in twelve twenty. So that, that the, the tribe within which Jerusalem is seated is is kept uh, for his son. And the rest are torn away from Solomon and his his line. Now this act of judgment temporal judgment on the nation of Israel um, and and Judah shows us something very important about God. That God is not a pluralist. And in our society today, we have people who celebrate the diversity of our culture and uh, celebrate all the different religions and how wonderful it all is, this great hodgepodge of different religions, how wonderful it is and how exciting it all is and everything. And uh, we need to celebrate this pluralist society that we live in. God's not a pluralist. God isn't a pluralist. He doesn't celebrate this. He sees it as an abomination. When men and women do not worship the one true God. And he's a jealous God. He absolutely is a jealous God. Jealous for his holiness. And preserving his majesty and dignity. He is the infinite, eternal and unchangeable God. There is no other alternative to God as God. There's only one. And he requires the absolute worship and devotion of all human beings. He even in the Gospel proclamation, he actually commands everyone everywhere to repent. It's not an option. <clears throat> it's not a choice. It is a command. And nothing short of this absolute devotion to God is is good enough. Anything short of it is an attack on his dignity and majesty and glory. And it also means that we fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul means in Romans 3.23. We fall short of the glory of God in our sin. So let's not have any uh, sentimental thoughts about how God is being nasty here. He is, after all, God. There's no other option here. There's none like him. And he won't tolerate the worship of anything else. So before we finish... So let's just pausing for a moment to think. After that um, heavy message, there is a hint of a promise here. And it's in verse 13. Where we're told, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And that one tribe is Judah. And that tribe, Judah, will remain in the fold for a time at least. And actually, Judah and Jerusalem are going to remain important in God's great plan of redemption. Because it's from that one tribe, Judah, that a savior is going to come, a king is going to come, a priest is going to come called Jesus Christ. And Jerusalem represents the people whom he is going to save. The church triumphant, who often talk about you know, the saints who have gone to heaven. How is that described by Paul? He describes it as the Jerusalem above. You know, and when you read about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelation, he's not talking about buildings. I mean, <laughs> he's talking about the people. The whole people of God gathered together. And Jerusalem matters for that reason. It's about the people that he is saving for himself. So God's purposes are not failing here. He's not giving up and throwing up his hands in frustration. But he is saying this king's going to come. A true king is going to come, a greater than Solomon is going to come, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this King, Jesus Christ, who will not weaken or fail, but is God the Lord. He remains faithful forever, both to his Father and to his people. We thank you that we can rest in him. And as the head goes, so the people go. As we rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, so we too will remain faithful. We pray that every single person here would be in Christ and come to him. And find their true fulfillment and enjoyment as they do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.